Hello and welcome to Superpowers with Tasha, the podcast that celebrates differences and the extraordinary power that lies within each of us. In a world that often focuses on limitations, this show shines a light on the unique and incredible abilities that each of us bring to the table. Turning what society may perceive as limitations into sources of strength. We hope to inspire you to embrace your own superpower, whatever that may be, and to recognize the amazing potential you have. Today, I've got such an amazing guest with me, the amazing Dr. Alex George. He's got Heart of God, and I love what he's standing for, you know, mental health campaigning, and recently he's opened up about discovery of ADHD. And, you know, I see you as a superhero. As you know, this podcast is all about bringing people on that are doing amazing things and that are really, really doing things that they're passionate about. So that's why I had to bring you on to hear. So I'm very excited to have you here with me today. Thank you. Today. Thank you for having me. I mean, I've enjoyed, we obviously recorded a Stompcast episode a couple of uh, weeks ago, months ago now, it wasn't long ago. Months? Was it long ago? It fe- honestly, it feels like time's flying. Yeah, I know. It? it feels like a year ago. Yeah, well, it was <laughs> honestly, I really, I really enjoyed it. So um, when you asked me, I was glad to come on. Yeah, no, because I feel like you really are a great, great ambassador, you know, for the youthful, for the younger generation. So I like what you're standing up for. And it's so important to have a role model like you, especially in this industry as well. And a lot of young people really look up to you. Even I do as well. I think what you stand for is just incredible. Oh, thank you. So let's take it back to growing up. That was a while ago now. Yeah. How old are you now? I'm 31. Okay. And 24. Yeah. I'm yeah. old now. I mean, that, when you hit the 30s time, there is like a... Oh, now I need to be like an adult, but then you're no. not really an adult still. I'm still I'm still 21 year old Alex in my head, but I'm 31, you know. Yeah, it's a weird time. Yeah, but live your life. You're still young. Yeah, yeah. Always going to be in your 20s. Exactly. You've got to yeah. pretend. It's all in the mind, isn't it? <laughs> I hope so. So, growing up for you, like, how was it for you? I grew up in West Wales. Yeah. Um, I'm Welsh. And I kind of had a very different life, I think, growing up to what I have now. Mm-hmm. And I mean that probably in terms of like the way I spend my time, my environment. I grew up in the countryside. I think there's often a, a misconception that because I'm a doctor and I speak a certain way that I'm from this like posh and wealthy background and it couldn't be further from the truth. You know, we yeah. didn't have very much growing up. We never went on holidays, maybe I think once in my childhood. Mm. Uh, we had one or two dinners out a year because that's what we could afford. And I think especially this modern generation now, everyone's eating out and it's, you see everyone on Instagram dining out all the time. True. But actually for a lot of people, we can't afford to do that. And I, you know, we didn't. So yeah. eating out was a real treat. But I don't think my childhood was lacking in any way because of that. I mean, we we spent our time playing in the fields, you know, yeah. local farms and things. We had a basically a little cottage surrounded by countryside. So we made the most of that. You yeah. know? And I actually think... So much now for the younger generation, young people growing up. I think it's a real shame. They're missing out on so much enrichment in life just by enjoying nature and mm-hmm. getting outside and messing about in the mud, you know, climbing trees, whatever it is. Yeah. So I, I, even though we didn't have a lot, I feel in yeah. terms of materialist stuff, personally, yeah. I think I had so much in my childhood. You know, a family of mum and dad and, you know, three siblings, all boys. So we got up yeah. to a lot of mischief, but we enjoyed ourselves. <laughs> Imagine three yeah. boys. Yeah. yeah. But, but my like... poor mum, my poor mum, she never got to watch anything but football oh. or rugby, especially in Wales. <laughs> that's so true. So I grew up around countryside as well. So I can relate to, like, I never used to play didn't attend to anything. I'd be going out, getting the chalk and drawing hopscotch on the floor and like yeah. writing one, two, three. And that was like my fun. I used to really enjoy that. I'd take Barbie dolls outside to the field with me and just play around with Barbie dolls. And it's so true, like now growing up, the younger generation really have a different 
kind of like social inference, isn't it? Like Instagram and all these things, that's what they're looking up to. So I think even even earlier than social media, I think, um, you know, I've got a goddaughter, Cara, who we went away on holiday and, you know, I, I find it fascinating that even as a baby it's so easy for things like phones to become mm-hmm. like their attention like even I was on my I, I put my phone down as much as I could on holiday to be honest but if I was on my phone and I was holding her her eyes are drawn to it so mm-hmm. you know the lights the phone literally draws you in and even a baby is sucked as you're only four months old but yeah. sucked into looking into the screen and so so much of like being a toddler and young young uh, children now is mm-hmm. iPads phones tablets and stuff and that just Crazy. was not a thing when I was younger. And the issue is, I think, is that we are then training very young children to have such a short attention span and to have an attention that is only drawn in by things that trigger dopamine, Mm -hmm. that trigger, elicit a really strong response to a stimulus. So the Mm -hmm. iPad is just something to stimulate your brain, isn't it? So it's sucking you in. Whereas if you lift your head up from that and you grow up appreciating what's around you in general, creating your own fun. You know, when I was growing up, my interest in becoming a doctor was nothing to do with mental health at all. Mm-hmm. In fact, I didn't really know what it was at school. Even at the age of 18, as someone who's like wanting to go to med school, I didn't know what that really was or what it meant. Yeah. You know, depression, I just thought that meant just someone that was crying all the time. That was as far as probably my understanding was. And I'm not sure my understanding developed that much at med school, to be honest. It's not something that at medical school we focused that much on. Yeah. It was much more about physical health. I think it was through my own experience probably that I became passionate about it. Like I went to uni to study medicine because I saw shows about you know, A&E and car accidents and heart attacks and, you know, all the adrenaline. But when I actually started working in the hospital, the stuff I saw was much more about people's mental health and realising that the connection between the mind and the body is so strong and you can't have good mental health or good physical health without the other. Um, But, you know, at uni, I think was, you know, my first experience. I was in my fourth year. Yeah. And so I studied at Exeter and Plymouth on the West Coast. And you get placements so you end up going to a different hospital to work for a while and I was down in Truro beautiful part of the world Cornwall's lovely but even the most beautiful surrounding can feel a very lonely place if you don't have your friends your family and a sense of belonging there and growing up in Wales it was a very long way from home so I felt really isolated and I think for the first time in my life I actually started feeling flat and down and just didn't feel myself and I started feeling more anxious and I just wasn't right and I ignored it for a long time and as with most problems, when you ignore them, yeah. they get worse. So it got to the point where I was like, God, Alex, I don't feel good here. What am I going to do? So I thought, well, I could speak to the medical school. I could go and speak to the GP. But my fear was, if I do that, will they judge me? Will they say, Alex, can you really be a doctor if you're not looking after yourself or if you're struggling? Maybe we should hold you back a year. Mm-hmm. That was my worry. So I didn't go. And eventually, as I say, the problem got worse. And I was like, God, I really have to do something. I felt awful. My grades were affected. I just didn't feel right. So I eventually called my um, mum, picked up the phone, and I called and I said, Mum, I feel awful. And all this emotion came out. And there was a real release, actually. I felt um, actually almost good that I dropped this off my shoulders, you know, that weight. And she said something very wise. And my mum is not a doctor. She's not a medic. She worked in the bank growing up. And she said, Alex, look, you know, how would you feel good? You're not doing anything that is conducive that conducive with feeling good in yourself. Your your sleep is all over the place. You don't get any natural light. You're not seeing your friends. You're not exercising. Your food, your diet is not good. You're not engaging any hobbies that you used to enjoy. And I was like, God, that's pretty wise advice. So we made a plan. And the first thing we decided to do was to do uh, thoughts of the day. So we'd have a phone call every night and talk about things that I was thinking. So 
I was having very negative thought processes. I was really like beating myself up in my mind. So we talked about all the things I was thinking, form of therapy, really. I made a plan to go to bed at 10 and get up at half seven every day. Mm. And when I get up, I go for a walk. So I get morning light. It was the, almost the origins of the stomp cast, really. Mm. Um, I planned an exercise routine. I started cooking my own food. I started calling my friends and making plans. And at first, it was really hard. I felt like I was fighting against the tide. You know, the tide's coming, you're trying to push through the waves. Mm. But eventually, I broke through the waves, and I got to the nice, settled, calm water afterwards, where you're nice, you sit on your surfboard, waiting for a nice, big wave to surf back in. I'd broken through those waves. And I felt so much better. And I realized for the first time what mental health was and also how important it is to genuinely look after yourself. Mm -hmm. And I really realized that most people either don't know, which is understandable because no one teaches them, or they know and they don't engage with it. And so much of what I see in A&E, so much of the struggles and unhappiness that I see is from the fact that people are not putting the energy often in the right places in terms of dealing with life difficulties. For yeah. example, you know, you feel bad but you drink too much alcohol or, you know, you're not getting any movement or, you know, things are difficult in your life. We all face challenges. I mean, we're, there's an economic crisis at the moment. There could be that. It could be a workplace. It could be family issues. When you're facing these difficulties, what is your reaction to them? Yeah. You know, and, and I think it's really important we teach kids as they're growing up that you are going to have hardship. Whether you're from a rich family or a poor family, mm -hmm. likely those hardships can be different. And we know that people from low socioeconomic backgrounds are often have much higher rates of mental illness. And there's various reasons for that. But regardless of that, you will face challenges. Absolutely. You know, no one has a free ticket in life. I don't no. believe that at all. And so it's learning how to deal with those challenges, bringing in support around you. That is what what gives you resilience. And yeah, that that for me is is what I care about. And that's why as ambassador it's so, so important, you know, to me to try and champion these things for young people already. I feel like there's a bit of a stigma as well around admitting that you do have, you know, mental health. And especially the younger people, I feel like they get, it's just a stigma around embarrassment. I mean, I can see it quite a lot. It takes a lot for people to own up to it. And, you know, it doesn't define you. It really does not define you. And like you said, people will struggle in life and people will have hardships. And that's what life's about, it's challenges. And But I feel like... A lot of people, like you said, we don't get taught enough about mental health. I really know a little bit about it, but, you know, some people in my family have dealt with mm. it. And, you know, mental health is really, really such a broad kind of... It's a big umbrella, isn't it? And so many things come underneath this umbrella. And that's why you being the role model that you are, you are breaking these stigmas down. You are owning up to it, which is amazing because every story that you share will go such a long way mm. and that's why you know your story is so inspiring and it's just so incredible that you're being so open and showing that it's okay to not be okay thank you, you. Know? well i think so much of and going to that point around education I, you know mm. i hear all the time people say oh one in four people are affected by mental health and that really annoys me because wow. even if you follow that idea that one in four people are affected by mental health you know look at what happened with my brother you know he died two years ago died by suicide and his effect you know, it's not just on his life, it's everyone. You know, my mum describes it as if you have this bucket full of water and you drop a little pebble in it, the ripple effect. Everyone that knew Clear, so from his nursery teachers through to his primary teachers through to his GP to people that knew him, family, extended family, friends of mine who knew him growing up, it affects so many people. Mm -hmm. So even if you think that it is genuinely only one in four, it isn't because the effect on everyone else. If you have a child, and I speak to many parents as part of what I do, if you have a child that's struggling with anorexia or an eating mm -hmm. disorder, 
is it just the child that's affected or does it affect your entire family? Of course yeah. it does. So I don't like that idea that one in four. And the other thing, the other issue with talking about it in that way is always seeing it negative because to me, mental health, and this is why I believe everyone has it, mental health is a spectrum. Mm -hmm. Like one end, you've got perfect mental health, which very rarely exists, but it's there, it's on the spectrum. And on the other end, you've got extreme mental illness, mm -hmm. ill health. And most people are somewhere on, on the way. And the reason it's important to think of it this way is your position is never fixed. You can have fantastic mental health at the moment, yeah. but you have no idea what happens. Take, for example, with my brother, life changes, he's gone. You know, my, me and my family, are, all of our mental health is dragged right to the rock bottom. You can't, you almost can't prepare for that moment. It just can happen. So your position is never fixed. That's really important for people also struggling because if you are in a situation where, you know, this is what we obviously wish with clear that he could have seen this, even if you're really struggling and you're really in a difficult place, you can't see out of the dark hole, a, it doesn't last forever. And secondly, you can come back to the good place. Mm -hmm. But it's very hard to see at this end of, uh, of the spectrum. And that's why at school, it's so important to teach everyone yeah. about good mental health, about prevention and looking after yourself, but also what to do when you're struggling. So that when in those difficult times, your life energy is low and you're really struggling, you know the coping mechanisms, what to do to get yourself out of that situation. And if you can't deal with it, then who to go to to get that support. And I think fundamentally... If we can change the approach to prevention and to stopping kids and young people and in a situation where they feel that dark, where they're turning to eating disorders, mm. they're struggling with depression or anxiety, if we can really focus on prevention, not only we can stop people becoming ill, yeah. we can help people live. Because yeah. life isn't just about surviving. It's not about survival. And that's why I'm a little bit, I always am a little bit cautious about talking about suicide rates in the country because actually... We're in a really sad state if we use suicide as the marker of how well we're doing in mental health. Surely we should be looking at people's peace and yeah. looking at how people are enjoying their lives, that are enriched in their lives, a much better marker. So you know, to anyone listening goes, well, I feel all right. You know, is mental health important? A, you have no idea what's going to happen in your own life and you will face difficult times. Mm -hmm. Living is having and facing challenges and overcoming them. And second, you have you have no idea when someone else might struggle, something might happen around you that really rocks you and affects you. So yeah. build your resilience, learn those coping tools, look after yourself and understand what to do when you're under pressure or something happens. Yeah. It's also about even people around you can be struggling with mental health as well. I know reaching out to your friends and family or just checking in every now and then, just saying, you know, are you OK? I'm here if you need me. And I feel like sometimes people forget that there are also people around you that can be struggling. And you know the saying, always be kind, always comes into it. And you never know what's happening behind closed doors. You know, people, someone can look so, so happy. You know, for example, on Instagram, someone could be literally living their life on Instagram, but actually they're really struggling behind closed doors. And it's really kind of interesting to see that comparison, you know. People feel the need that they have to look perfect, that they're really living their life, but are kind of scared to say, I am struggling a little bit, you know, like I am finding it a bit hard and everything you've said there as well is really really interesting especially about your brother as well I think you open up now I appreciate that as well thank you for that and I think it really is does need to be taught more in education and schools it really really does and I agree with you because even me growing up in school I didn't learn anything to do with mental health I learned nothing literally nothing I feel like we're kind of thrown into school kind of have to get on with it and you don't really have that support system of like even pressures of exams, GCSEs, that sometimes I can really, really get to people, like bullying in school. Like there's so many different aspects. And if we're really, really taught those things in school, it could really be a different kind of... 
A process. Yes, yeah. 100%. And I think um, it's recognizing as well for, and people go and, and ask me, say, why is it so important right now? Why is this, mm. why has this become so much on the agenda? Are we actually seeing worse rates of things? And, you know, at the moment we're seeing eating disorders on the rise, self-harm, all markers of illness. And you go, well, why is that happening? People go, well, you know, every generation has its challenge. That's true. But this generation has had arguably more challenges than anyone. Mm -hmm. Global pandemic, social media becoming in their face 24 hours a day. So there's an overload of content, harmful as well as good content. Yeah. Things like bullying. I started a campaign called Don't Face It Alone with Downing Award and number 10, Downing Street, with a massive survey and found that one in two young people right now are bullied either in person or online. So if you've got three kids, one or two of them are being bullied right now. And that's the truth. That's the fact of the matter. We're the first, arguably the first generation coming through now who are questioning, will they be here in 50, 60 years? You know, climate change, yeah. climate anxiety is huge. We're facing an economic crisis that is probably going to be deep-rooted and is going to last a while. So that pressure on young people mm -hmm. is more, arguably, than ever. We also have a time where we're expecting kids to do more and more exams. It really frustrates me when you look at our system in this country. I think we've got a lot of it wrong. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at countries that have the highest rate of achievers coming out of school by almost any marker that you want to use, they're the countries in Scandinavia generally. And people go, why is that the case? Well, they learn through play till the age of 10 or 11. They don't really have exams before that particularly. Yeah. They have some tests, but they're nowhere near what we have. And they focus much more on building well-rounded individuals who are perfect for working in the workplace and give them the skills to adapt and learn, mm -hmm. and the process of learning, rather than assessing them on everything they learn. And what do you remember from GCSE, genuinely? I mean, I, I, even Nothing. things like GCSE biology, I mean, I, you re, when you go to medical school, you relearn everything because most of what you learn at school is, yeah. is not either to the level or really what we need to know at med school. So none of what you really learn at school is particularly useful. What matters about school is learning how to learn mm -hmm. and learning how to cope with working life and, and things like that. And that's why the mental health is so important, because if you want to improve attainment at school, if that is genuinely a mark you want to improve, if you want to improve behaviour at school, yeah. if you want to improve class engagement and things and, and attendance, then focus on their mental health. You know, schools that we've managed to establish mental health support teams and adequate support at schools and being able to change the culture to have a whole school approach to well-being, we've seen happier teachers because the kids are better behaved and they're less worried. I mean, go around the country, and as I do, go around the whole UK, I have not spoken to a teacher yet when I say, what's your biggest worry that's turned around the GCSE results? They say, I'm worried about that child harming themselves at home or that they might have an eating disorder or, worst case, that it might take their own life. Teachers aren't worried about their grades. I'm not saying mm -hmm. they don't care. Of course the teachers care about it, but it's not what keeps them awake at night. So if you want to improve the teacher's mental health, support the kids. Yeah. If you want to help the parents' mental health, support the kids. If you want the kids to get a good education, enjoy school and have an enriched experience, support their mental health. Yeah, 100% agree. That's really, really, really true. Like what you said there, it's like... Even teachers, no one actually thinks about the teachers' mental health. Like it's so true because like, it's also affecting them and and their families. Yeah, and, and their children. Yeah, it, it affects, affects everyone. everyone. It affects yeah. everyone. And if you if you look at the situation at the moment, we're having so many teachers leaving the profession. Why? Because they're burning out. If you look at the NHS, up to eighty percent of the NHS is burnt out. You know, so how are they going to provide good mental health care or good physical health care if we're not looking after them? We're in a situation where nurses are, are striking because they're working in largely yeah. unsafe situations. So it goes back to, um, you know, the fundamentals, the, the Maslow's hierarchy of need, that pyramid of need. So the base of your pyramid is 
food, water, shelter, environment, including literally the temperature that you're in, the people that are around you, the mood, the atmosphere. You need to have that base of the pyramid strong before mm. you can reach the top, which is actuality. So the top of that pyramid is like kind of the future thinking, the kind of pioneering work that you want to do. Mm-hmm. How can we expect our healthcare system to be pioneering or our education system to be pioneering new ideas if the basis is all wrong? Yeah. You know, you've got to sort those base points at the bottom. And that's why, you know, for me, I my worry with the energy crisis is because I know fundamentally if people are not able to afford to heat the houses or can't provide themselves with good nutrition, how on earth are they going to have good mental health yeah. or physical health for that matter? It's very true. And I think, you know, especially the crisis we're in now is even more pressure, so much more pressure and people having to deal with this every day as well. And, you know, like you said, the base of the pyramid is so true. You kind of have to start building upon it. And I think I learned a lot more life skills later on, I would say, probably when I went to dance uni. That's when I actually started to learn actual things I needed in my life, like what I actually needed for me to be happy, what I needed that benefited me. And I feel like in school, it's just kind of like you have to do French. I didn't want to do French GCSE, but they're like, you have to do it. Yeah, like, you have to do business studies. And it's like, that's not making me happy. Like that doesn't fulfill me. That doesn't, it's not what I want to do in my future. And I feel like a lot of children really get pressurized. You kind of have to do the traditional way of like, you know, you have to mm. get married, have kids, all these kind of things. It's at that pressure. And it's like, no, like I feel like school really should be about finding what you want to do and what makes you happy and what really is going to fulfill you. And I got told so many times, dance is not a proper career, you're not going to have a career. Like, I got battered down so, so many times. I was like, I'm too creative to be, you know, doing anything else. It made me happy, and that's why I never gave up on that. And I feel like that pressure really does get to a lot of the younger generation of, like, well, I'm not meant for that, but they get battered down quite a lot yeah. for doing that. So I think the, tr- the education system is built for a certain type of person. Mm-hmm. And if you fit into that mould, fantastic. If you don't, that's very difficult. Like My dream yeah. is to have an education system where you build foundations, the base of that pyramid, yeah. and then you allow room for people to take their own direction. So you might be very creative and you go in that direction, you might be very scientific and go in that direction. You should allow people to move from that mm-hmm. solid base and build their own pyramids. And just while we're still on that point, you know, one of the biggest bases of the pyramid is financial health. So when you left school, did you feel that like you had adequate education on like basics of finances? What an ISA was, mortgage, how an interest rate, what's inflation? No. I have gone around many schools and I asked the same question every time. I've almost never had someone put their hand up and say, I feel like I have a good understanding. Mm-hmm. But how crazy is it that you go to school, fundamentally, if you go back to the basics, as a country, we educate people to get jobs, yeah. to be able to raise families, to pay for the bills, to pay for what they want to do, to allow the country to continue, to continue growing and mm-hmm. establishing itself. So when we put kids in school, why are we not teaching them about finances? Because surely that is why they go... You know, we all want to live and do what yeah. we enjoy, but fundamentally you are getting a job because you need to be able to pay things. Yeah. And we also know that the number one cause of anxiety and worry and stress for adults, number one cause is financial worries. So if we know that the biggest cause of worry is finances, why are we not teaching that school? Kids should leave school and understand mm-hmm. what a current account is, what a saving account is, how the country calculates inflation rate, what is interest rate, yeah. mortgages, like how does a mortgage work? Some, you know, I've had lots of people say, oh, but you know, when I pay back my mortgage, surely I just pay back the value of the house. It's like, no, when you take a mortgage, if it's 5%, you're, you're maybe going to pay two times the value of your house. So, no, there's not an 
issue with that per se, but you should understand it. Yeah. I mean, a good example, I feel so sorry for all the students going to university at the moment, they're paying nine or 10 grand in fees and they're signing into 6% interest. You know, I didn't know, and here's an example of, I think, how wrong it is. I didn't know that when I lent my first pound coin from student loans when I went to study at medical school mm. that my interest started at the first loan. I assumed that you do your five years and then you start paying yeah, interest or so. you start accumulating interest, but no, you don't. Wow. And so, and that was okay actually when I was there because it was a fixed like 1%. Now it's 6%. A student going to study medicine wow. will come out with probably a hundred grand-ish in debt. Uh, you know, they like me with no, the family aren't can't afford to give their money. You come out with a, probably a hundred grand in debt. You're not going to pay that back, uh, especially as a doctor, until your 60s. Wow. And that's not knocking going to university, but I think we're doing an injustice to young people by not giving them the understanding to make choices. Because you might go, do you know what, I want to be a dancer and you might want to go to college or uni, that's fine. But you go, well, actually, I'd rather take this direction or maybe, for example, someone, again, fine, if you want to go and study business and stuff. But you might go, well, actually, am I better off to go and spend 50 grand at university doing a business course or is there another way of like doing an it? internship or We're just making choices. I think just give, yeah. giving people, if you give people, knowledge is power. So yeah. if you empower children, empower young people, when they become adults, they make better choices. They don't get themselves into as much financial difficulty because they'll understand these are the options, you know, uh, available to me. And they don't become adults with no understanding of finances and bowing their heads. I mean, most Brits, if you look at any kind of surveys, they don't, most Brits don't have an understanding of how much asset they have mm -hmm. or what they actually owe. A lot of people don't even know what the monthly outgoing is. They don't have a number in their head that they know is their base outgoing and their like variable outgoings. Yeah. And actually, if you think about it, that's not great, is it? Mm -hmm. We all bury our heads and go out on a Friday night, but we don't understand it. But then I don't blame people. I blame the system because yeah. they wouldn't do that. They're only doing that because they're not being taught to understand. Yeah. So I love history and I love learning about history, but have that as an optional thing, have the basis of how to look after your physical health, your mental health, your emotional health, your financial mm -hmm. health, your sexual health, have that as a basis, and then let people be who they want to be from there. You know, recently you opened up about ADHD as well, and can you tell me a bit more about ADHD so I've got more of an understanding? That's beautifully segued, enjoy that. Now, um, yeah, ADHD is something that I'm still learning about, and um, I, I was diagnosed with it... Um, how long ago now? Probably about four months ago. My concept of time isn't great. I think it's about four months ago, but it's something I've been thinking about for a very long time. Mm -hmm. I probably started... When I was at school, I always knew I was quite different. I've always been different. Okay. And I remember being in primary school, and I really struggled to concentrate all the way through class. I generally would learn very quickly. I would get a concept quick and I would be on to the next thing. And whatever that would be, it might be talking to my mate or be distracting myself or writing something or reading something, but I wouldn't sit there for an hour. And mm -hmm. so you imagine how much trouble that would get me with teachers or, or whatever. And eventually I was put into a, a separate class uh, for people that were that were struggling or learning difficulties. And I was taken out of kind of mainstream learning most of the time. And that didn't help anything at all. You basically stuck me in a different room and if anything was worse, because then I felt like I wasn't part of everyone else and I actually wasn't benefiting from the room I was sitting in. Eventually, thankfully, my mum came in and said, I think Alex is relatively bright. Maybe you should put him back in class and there's obviously something else going on, but maybe you should let him get back to class. I had to go back and I basically, in my, I didn't understand it at the time, but I'd made a decision mm. that... If I didn't find a way to get through this in the mainstream, I ended up back in that class. So I internalised 
everything. So now I understand that I have ADHD, so I've got impulsivity, short but laser-focused attention, risk-taking, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm very, very sensitive. I've always been very sensitive, very sensitive at school. And I had to internalise all of that to conform. Because, you know, we said earlier on, there's a system, there's a certain person I had to conform. I'm also dyslexic so, and I'm left-handed. My writing is terrible. Mm. So all of these things were really difficult at school. And as I went through secondary school, there were times where I basically learned to focus when I had to focus. So around exam time, I was like, I need to knuckle down now. But I allowed myself to kind of be a bit more free. And maybe I played the edge of that sometimes where teachers like, Alex, need to focus. But it was really hard. I really found it difficult. And, Mm. you know, I applied to medical school first time round. Me and my best friend, Adam, who we're just on holiday with, he ended up being head boy. I was deputy head boy. I'm still a little bit bitter about it now, many years later. I missed that by a few votes, I would add. Um, (laughs) I would have been a better head boy, actually, I think. I can say that because he's not here. So so we have both applied to go. I applied to medical school at Liverpool. Mm -hmm. He applied to dental school. I'm not being nasty or blitting the school I went to, but the, there were no one really applied to medical school to, at the school I went to or, or, or similar or dental school for that matter. Mm. Anyway, applied. We both got a place. So we'd gone through the process of, you know, writing the statement, doing all the work experience, doing an exam specifically for dental and medical school, got our places. Imagine the dream. You're going with your best mate to Liverpool Uni. Mm-hmm. I was so excited. Got to results day. I walked in and I opened my, my results. And I was like, right, great. I got A, 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 A. B in chemistry. And I missed out by my A by two marks because they dropped my coursework. And they dropped it because of one, eventually I found out it was one line in the coursework that was wrong. And they dropped the whole thing to like a D. I don't understand why they scored it in this way. They scored it basically, you have to hit the bottom rung of the ladder of the certain marks to be able to right. get the top rung. Anyway, trust me, I, I was very upset about it. But in that moment, on that day, when you open that results up, I was absolutely devastated. I was gutted because I thought, you know what? That's it. My dreams are gone. I was aware. I always felt like an outsider applying to medical school because generally it's doctors' children or rich mm-hmm. people or private school people. It's not a state boy from West Wales that goes to med school. So I thought that was it. I thought I was done. And I remember going home and I sat. My mum was crying. God, the dog was. Everyone's bloody crying. <laughs> my nan was crying. Aww. Everyone's upset. And I said, "Well, what am I going to do?" And they said, "Well, it's up to you, really." And and I decided basically to go again and that I would just give it everything and go. And I wouldn't let the failure stop me. And it was the best thing I ever did because actually that taught me when I got my new place and I went through the exams again, I sorted the the coursework out and I got my place. It gave me a real sense of like, I want this so badly. But what is interesting, and I look back on that time now with the knowledge that I have ADHD and realise that it didn't have to be that hard. Mm-hmm. And, I, and same with dyslexia, it didn't have to be that hard. I had two times in my life where I realised I really had to conform. And that was when I was put into a different class and when I failed to get the results first time. What was interesting in the next part of my journey at med school is that I went there and I thought, you know what, I've got in now, I'm Mm -hmm. just going to do this my way. And to be perfectly honest, I didn't go to any lectures all the way through med school. I learned in my way. And the way that I learned is I got, I had education, I had the videos of the lectures that were recorded, all the lecture recorders. I'd watch them back. Right. At home, jumping through the bits I want. Stop, start in 20 minute intervals without knowing. I didn't know I had ADHD at this point. I'd stop, mm. start. I'd learn from reading the books. I've got not a picture memory, but I can pretty much read things and I'll remember it. So I was like, do you know what? The education system has pretty much failed me all the way through. I'm going to do this my way. Okay. You know, I came out with a distinction to a top five of the whole year. And bear in mind, I couldn't get in at first. So 
I look back now and realise that my life could have been so different if people would have understood mm -hmm. that me being different didn't mean I was stupid and my handwriting being bad or the way I spelled didn't mean I didn't have a lot to offer. And it's really sad because I, I think when I, when I finally got diagnosed at the age of 31, I think the sadness and the grief that I felt is looking back on your life and realising that, do you know what, life's hard enough as it is. We don't need to make mm. it more, more difficult. And there were so many opportunities for people to pick it up. It's not for me as a 10-year-old to realise I've got ADHD. It should have been picked up in the system. It should have been picked up by people mm -hmm. around me. And I'm not blaming my parents. I'm not blaming people directly. But it was really missed. And you know, think that 5% of the adult population have ADHD. That's a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And now in my position, fine, I, I'd say that I'm broadly successful in what I've done. I've achieved my goals. I, I've done a lot of the things that I, I want to do so far. But how many people with dyslexia or ADHD or other neurodiversity have fallen by the wayside because the system has brushed them aside? That is the sad point. It's not me. It's not going, and I know the title of the podcast around a superpower like do I think that ADHD is beneficial in some ways yes but it's a huge negative in others mm -hmm. and it's my determination through those things that got yeah. me there and and, and, I, and I think that's what I found difficult part of it is the grief but part of it's as well going gosh there's certain things that really are more difficult yeah there's good things like take for example a and &E. I mean how brilliant is it to have laser focus between patients and a and &E? I can run between them all and I don't have to concentrate too long but with relationships with friendships with life in general it can be really challenging because mm. you i'm focusing on one thing someone's trying to have a conversation with them on to the next thing it creates a lot of challenges mm -hmm. it really does wow so it's getting used to all that stuff that i find find difficult and i also think people have, i mean there's like so many things in life i mean take for example suicide we say committed suicide it was abolished as a crime in 1967, I think. You know, it used to be a crime to take your own life. So, mm. you know, we say committed GBH, committed theft, committed robbery, whatever. You don't commit suicide. It's not a crime. But we used to incarcerate. We used to lock people up that try to take their own lives. Mm. ADHD, I mean, it stands for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. There's two issues there, deficit and disorder for me. Do you struggle with the word disorder? Yes, I think so. And I think there's it's a mixed people within... In the kind of neurodiverse community, there's a lot of debate over this. And mm -hmm. I'm not saying what well, my opinion is right, it's just my opinion. And yeah. those listening might have a different one. But my two issues with the word ADHD, first, is that it's not an attention deficit, it's an attention difference. Mm -hmm. So I have an incredible attention to detail when I my mind is on something. Like if I am seeing a patient and you're my focus like my brain is so focused on that and I'll remember everything Jeez, I used to on the wards we'd have like 25 30 patients and I could remember every blood result pretty much for most of the patients because it was important to my mind therefore my mind remembered everything mm -hmm. but I couldn't remember my phone number I can't remember my phone number now I can't tell you if you ask my number I have to go to my phone I got my number written in notes so I search my number and it's there and people I and it's sad because I have to lie to people I say oh I've had I've got a new number I've had new, new, that number for years now but I always have to say oh, I've got a new number because I can't remember it. It's embarrassing if you don't remember your number. The only excuse you can have is if it's new. Yeah. Um, you know, so the, the deficit annoys me because it's not a deficit. It's a difference of, of attention. It's really focused, but it's not for a long time. Disorder, well, it depends on your definition of order. What is order? And it's the parameters of society. Again, if you look at school, look at Alex at school. The only reason that I was put into a separate class or that I, you know, my grades would drop from a, a, um, yeah. a coursework piece was because of what you decided was order, what was normal. So the way that I'm different, is that genuinely disordered or is that just doesn't fit into what you want me to be? Because there are lots of ways that it's really beneficial. 
Um, and there's lots of ways, obviously, that it's difficult. I think the bit and the counter argument, which I appreciate, people would say is that there is a difference in the way our brains work. So people with ADHD, we have a deficit, essentially, of dopamine mm. is one of the big things. So you have a deficit of dopamine, which basically means you spend your life hunting for dopamine. Dopamine is our reward neurotransmitter in our brain, our reward hormone. So if you are scrolling through TikTok and you laugh or you get a ping from your boyfriend or whether it's you eat a bar of chocolate, mm -hmm. it triggers that reward, that dopamine in your brain. Mm -hmm. So if in ADHD, because you have that deficit, you're constantly hunting. I drew a picture I found art to be very, very therapeutic, actually, with ADHD. I drew a, a picture of a, a child looking up like a dark sky with stars and like constantly reaching for the stars. And I think that is a perfect, well, to me, that's the way that I see it. You're constantly reaching out for these dopamine stars, but you can never quite get them. So mm. you're more impulsive. You can be more hyperactive. That can be internalized. You can have a lot more thought processes. Your attention is really short because mm. you're constantly looking for the next. And... That is, I think, the side of it that makes a lot of difficulty. And depending on how severe that is, that can be really hard. I mean, that could be as difficult, again, relationships, yeah. workplace, risk-taking. Some people might spend certain money that they maybe shouldn't have spent at that time. Mm. They make a choice that was actually too risky. And I think now I understand it's a catch-22 because I have, I'm in the position I am because I've done things differently. I've not been afraid of judgment or doing things the way that people expect me to yeah but some of that potential risk may have been i wouldn't say it's too risky i've made decisions i don't regret decisions i've made but certainly i put myself in risky situations that i was not aware of that makes sense yeah yeah of course and i think you know when you're talking about back at school you felt like you were different and you've been taken out of class and put into a different classroom i can kind of relate you know sometimes i'd have to go to different lessons and different classes. We well, can more than relate. I mean, from the conversation that, we had, mm, I mean, you know, it, it, it is, of course, well, for, for you, I would say it's almost, I don't want to speak for you, but from what you said to me, it sounds even more challenging. I would I would say that and mm. I'd be the first to say that and it's just a different challenge, isn't it? But yeah. I think whenever you are not the norm, you're not in the normal parameter, whether that is through... Um, hearing difficulties mm -hmm. or visual no matter what or superpower whatever whatever it is that's different about you that i think always brings it chat well I, I did a episode on the stompcast with andrew scannon and she talks about you know some of the challenges of being a redhead mm. you know i think uh, things we say about people who are ginger or redhead you know they say it's one of the last acceptable forms of discrimination you know if you again you're different two percent of the population mm -hmm. are uh, red hair and therefore you're automatically different therefore you're spotted as being different yeah that makes sense yeah do you still feel like you're different right now do you feel embarrassed in any kind of way no i think i found and I wonder what you think about this, but I found that the more I'm open about this, the more connected I feel because I found a community now. Like I, And this is the point, I think we bash social media a lot, but I have no doubt that so many people from the deaf community will find, or I know, because I know from the number of messages I received after we, we spoke, that they find you inspiring. They feel a sense of connection because you're there. And that's why I think the social media, we've got to be careful about hammering it because there is a huge mm -hmm. sense of community and like help that's there. And, and I found that I've gone and I follow loads of ADHD pages now, whether that's individuals or like kind of community pages. And I find it so useful. In fact, I think I've learned more from that than I have from any NHS website. Mm -hmm. I'm not like knocking NHS for that at all, but I generally have because people's lived experience. Like I sat there the other day and I was swiping through um, like a carousel. Uh, basically, the page was talking about like these five things that we find difficult with ADHD. I was like, oh my God, that's me. It's kind of the, mm -hmm. the losing the keys, forgetting that where that is, the kind of 
really big high, but the really big low. And I was like, oh my God, that is literally yeah. me, the sensitivity. And I, I find that, that that has really helped me. So no, I don't feel embarrassed. I feel it does help in like to feel more connected. I think um I think I just feel do feel sad about some parts of my childhood. I think things I think I I punished myself a lot growing up because I wasn't the same as everyone else and I tried to be ever the same as everyone else. Yeah. And I think yeah. and I think that is difficult. Do do you find since obviously you there's only been a few months for you, do you find for you that you have found a, a community? Did you already have a community in that space or, you know, how has it been for you? I think before I didn't really, I feel like I was kind of the only one. I think coming out after the show, I do feel like there's a bigger, you know, so many more people I've discovered. And like you said, like I've learned more from talking to people and sharing my experiences and they, they share theirs. And I can really relate on that because, you know, coming out I definitely have had more of a bigger community now that I've found. And it's nice, like even, you know, my separate page, like obviously this podcast will be going mm. on to that and, yeah, like you said, it really social media can also be a really positive thing as well, you know. Yeah, the thing is for you as well is that you won't just be helping people that directly have the same. So, for, like for example, someone with ADHD, like I find that helpful. They might find something I talk about helpful. It's their family, it's their friends, it's people that are in the workspace that have someone mm -hmm. that, that 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 is identifies or is a form of that uh, one of those communities. So, and actually, if we step to a broader conversation around, for example, the mental health of men, which is a huge issue at the moment. Again, it really annoys me when we try and just make it about men fixing men's issues, mm -hmm. you know. And and I, and I think we are missing out on a huge superpower that women have of connection, of talking, of empathy, of um, getting people to to open up. And really, so much of fixing the issues we have in male mental health is getting um, mm -hmm. women talking to men and women teaching men how to communicate. Because yeah. look at growing up. I mean. Um, when I, I, d I think it is improving, but certainly when I was small, if I tripped up, you, you, the teacher would say to you, big boys don't cry, come on, big, big boys, mm -hmm. stop crying, get on with it. As you get older and you're a teenager, it's like grow some balls, like, you know, what are you, a girl? All these kind of damaging mm -hmm. connotations that, that people have. And basically society gives this person, this boy, all the way growing up an idea of what it means to be man, to not show emotion, to be strong, pictures, you know, in magazines, superheroes, what superheroes are like, nothing affects them. They're so strong, they're so resilient. And then we're surprised when a 40-year-old man in his darkest hours can't talk and ask for help because we've conditioned them yeah. their entire lives not to do that, whereas women are taught a different narrative. So yeah. I think it's, I think there's a real power in, I think, sharing and helping people understand and and using like the superpowers, I guess, of different communities to educate other people and also things you can learn from them. I mean, you know, like, for example, my risk taking, yes, I do take more risks, but part of that is a really good thing. I think so many people live their lives in their comfort zone. Yeah, Living is not about following you know, the road that you need to be on this expected road, almost like at school, you've got to learn this, do this, get a mortgage, have kids, live the life that you want to live. You know, yeah. I had a really weird moment a few months ago. I always have like, when I'm in bed, I always think about things. And I was lying in bed and I was like, almost like on Google Maps, you know, when you zoom out, yeah. I was lying in bed, I was like, right, I'm in London right now, zoom out the UK, zoom out the planet, zoom out even bigger. And I was like, wow, the whole universe. And I was like, well, how long has the planet been here? So I Googled. The planet's been around for a couple of billion years. Like, mm -hmm. Okay, how long has the human race been here? A couple hundred thousand, 200,000 ish. We measure time in 2,000 years, which is not very long. How long is the average life? About 70 years. So you realize that your time on this planet is so short. The universe, Still life has been around for on. billions of yeah. years. 
and then you're alive for a fraction. And after you're going to be dead, and this is this is a miserable. Yeah, no, for <laughs> you're going to be dead though. for billions of years. Billions of years. So when people are worried about things, your problem, no matter how big you think it is right now, it is insignificant. No one remember your problem in three generations. You know, and, but I think there's a real... I mean, I've got a tattoo that says Memento Mori on my arm, mm. and that means you two shall die. You will die. And I think that's so important because people don't live because they don't realise that they're not going to be here forever. I mean, we know it. If I ask you, yeah. are you immortal? You'd say no. But I think most of us, and me as guilty as anyone else, we often live like we're we're here forever. But you're but not. not. So you, whenever you're lying there worrying about something, remind yourself and do that cycle. I find it really helpful to zoom out. Tell yourself, how many years? How many years have we been around? How long is my life? I'm not going to be here. I'm gonna, after I die, billions of years. Is wow. my problem that big? I find that really helpful, grounding. Wow, that's massively, like, even opened my eyes. You just put that into like, perspective. Mm. You know, I'm sat here like, yeah. When, you know, because yeah. often, often problems, our brain is designed to, the, you know, the human mind, the reason it's so incredible is mm. it's designed to focus in on problems and put all of its energy into that problem. The issue is, is that we often put that focus in places that, or on things that we can't control. So I like this idea of a sphere of influence. Like whenever you have a problem, split it into inside your influence, so inside the sphere or outside. Mm. If it's inside your sphere, so I've got an exam next week, I'm behind on my revising, let's sit down and revise. That's inside your sphere. So you're worrying about it, do something about it. It's inside your sphere. If it's outside your sphere, like, oh gosh, what if I fail that med school exam? What if I get that wrong? What if I don't get a place at university? Can you control that? You can't, can you? You can only control what's in front of you right now, like preparing for the exam. So learning to split those problems is so important because we spend so much of our time worrying about things that we cannot change. And the worst of all, worrying about things that might never come to pass. If you worry about failing your exams and not getting your place to med school and you worry for three months, you do your revising, you're worrying for three months and then you do fail, okay, and you don't get your place and the worst case happens, you've suffered the same problem twice. Surely yeah. you're better having, a, you know, do your advising, but enjoy life, make the most of your time. And if you do fail, deal with it then. Yeah. And, and even more again, annoying, yeah. if you worry the whole time for three months, then you pass. What a waste of time. So you spend all that time. I've done it. I've done it myself. I've yeah. worried about things and then it's not come to pass. And you go, yeah, what a waste of time. And you look back and you're like, why did I spend all that time worrying about something when I could have actually done something about it? Mm. And, you know, like you said, it's so true. And. Honestly, Alex, I think you're just an incredible person. And I see the reason why, you know, like I said, I brought you on here is because of things you're doing. You are, every little thing you're doing is making a big change. And I hope you know that. And thank you. You opening up about your ADHD is also helping so many people out there as well. And that's a superpower itself. And a question I've got to ask you is what's your superpower? I think my superpower is that I am, I think I am incredibly resilient. I never thought I was. I always thought I was the sensitive, weak kid that was bullied at school, but I'm incredibly resilient. You know, I've survived some unbelievable things. You know, I worked through a pandemic where I worked every hour God gave me. I was doing media in the evening, trying to bring people to the front line, working unbelievable hours, and I survived it. You know, stuff I saw, I couldn't repeat a lot of the things that I saw. People wouldn't want to hear it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I survived my brother dying, you know, and uh, you know, finished the pandemic a relationship ended, my brother took his life and you know, I'm still here today. So I think that is my superpower. But the reason that I'm so resilient, I think, is because I am I am open and I'm able to I'm able not all the time, you know, I have the same hang ups that a lot of men have and find it difficult sometimes to talk, but 
I do get help when I need to and I realise that you know even in the diff most difficult times you can get through so um, yeah if anyone's listening and you're, you know you're having a difficult time if it is a dark hour know that you know the sun always rises the day always ends you know a new day comes and often your biggest problem now you won't even remember in a few years time yeah. you know you won't look often the things we're so hung up about when you're 70 years old and you're sat there hopefully cosy in your armchair you won't remember most of those problems you won't remember them 95 percent of things you're worrying about you will not remember when you're older you know focus on the focus on the experiences believe in yourself know that you're resilient and you get through it that's incredibly inspiring to hear that and people are just li listening to this you know just remember that you're not always alone and if you are someone that's struggling with mental health or you know ADHD please go to Alex's Instagram anything you know because you use your platform really really well and Stompcast as well an incredible podcast it's great to listen to it's nice to be going on a walk and you want to listen to something go listen. listen to our episode I think on the point on support if you can remember one place remember Hub of Hope so Hub of Hope was started by a couple of guys who basically realised there's actually a lot of support services out there but if you don't know about them they might as well not exist so if you type in and it's good for, to remember not just for yourself but you might have a friend who's struggling sometimes oh gosh who don't remember mine Samara. who's going to what charity is like, suitable Hub of Hope because what you do is you go online you put your postcode in it tells you all the support services available what they do when they're open the basics and so people can find the support themselves just remember Hub of Hope and even things like ADHD support you'll find them Amazing. Well, I mean, thank you so much for coming on my podcast. I really appreciate it. I've learned so much from you, and you are just an incredible person. And keep doing what you're doing. Likewise, and it's a fantastic, it's a fantastic podcast, and you're a great host. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed and took something useful from this episode. Don't forget to follow Superpowers with Tasha on your favorite podcast platform. And together, let's make our world a more inclusive and accepting place. See you next time.